You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go to Exodus chapter 12, and we continue in our Exodus series, and in many ways, this is is the passage we have really been waiting uh, to get to, where we see God rescue his people from slavery, and finally, in the last um, strike of judgment on Egypt, uh, we see Pharaoh let his people go. And uh, this may be a familiar, uh, familiar passage, or at least an event, um, but as we look at it in the context of this greater story, I think we can learn a lot more. And so Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, as uh, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. This is God's word. If you've been following with us through the Exodus story the last three months or so, you know this is what we've been waiting for. We've been building to this climax, to this event. We have seen the struggle of God's people. We have seen their oppression. We have seen their cries. We have seen their enduring suffering And wondering, when will God help? When will God see their struggle and rescue them? And this is the story of the Jewish Passover. And the Passover is the central event in all of Israel's identity. Back then and even to this day, it is this event that defines God's people, who they are, what they believe. This Passover event is so significant That it's easy to just look at this story as a standalone event where 
the destroyer, destroyer, the angel of death, the judgment of God, passed over his people, sparing their lives. And they are to remember this event and to commemorate it for the rest of their lives every single year. And it's easy just to look at it as a standalone, but when we see it in the context of this greater story, we gain so much more understanding. We talk about, last week, we talked in much further detail of the 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt as judgment. And this is the 10th and final plague that God would send on Egypt. So for us today, we realize we're not only reading a history story of God's people in Egypt and their rescue, but we are discovering a pattern a pattern that would endure all throughout Scripture, a pattern that tells us this, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. It's a pattern that God will set up for for ages to come, that his people will rehearse this every single year. They will learn that salvation comes through judgment. When you do this next year, uh, God says, And your kids ask you, why are we doing this? Why are we slaughtering the lamb? They are to tell their children because salvation comes through judgment. I'm going to give out the point of the Passover right here at the very beginning of the sermon. Don't leave. You've got to stay for the rest of it, though. But the only hope for salvation for God's people is a bloody sacrifice of an undeserving victim. This is the point of Passover. This is the story that would be rehearsed uh, for, for God's people forever. But the question remains, why does it have to be that way? Why is that? Why can't God just like, why can't he just forgive his people? Why does it have to be so bloody, so gruesome, so painful? And why does this poor, undeserving victim have to die. And to understand that, we want to look at this story, again, through the lens of God's whole story, and we see this, we must see the first, the, the, we must see the story of the destroyer, we must learn about the story of the lamb, and then we must see the story of the doorpost. And this passage walks us through each of these. Looking at God's word, we see a greater understanding of what it means. So first, let's look at the story of the destroyer. Uh, remember where our, we are in this story? God's commanded Pharaoh, let my people go over and over again. He says, let them go, and he doesn't do it. And so one plague after another, God sends his judgment. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He doesn't serve God. He's serving his own, his own reputation, his own desires. And so God sends a series of devastating plagues And this passage comes in the final plague, which finally loosens Pharaoh's hand, and he says, take your people and get out of here with everything you have. God says to Moses and Aaron, tell all of Israel to take a lamb, one for each household. And if your household's too small that you can't, you know, eat an entire lamb, or maybe you don't have enough money to go in and get a lamb, then go in with a neighbor and get a lamb for the two of you. But every single family has to have a lamb representing their family. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. I want you to kill it. I want you to drain its blood. I want you to eat its meat. And then I want, to take, I want you to take the blood, and I want you to make a paintbrush, and I want you to paint the blood on the outside of your doorposts. And here's what verse, here's what verse 22 says. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through 
to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. The destroyer is coming. What's, what's happening here? Let's look at what's happening here and gain some understanding. God is coming to bring judgment on Egypt, and he's going door to door to collect debts. And anyone who owes a debt will be found to be unable to pay that debt. The debt is a transgression. It's a failure to obey God. It is a debt of, of sin, the debt of failure to live up to God's standards, the debt to not worship God as he truly is. And, and you may have missed this point, which we often go through this too quickly, but it's a very important that we don't. And listen to this. God says, after you have put the blood on the doorpost, you must stay inside until the morning. Do not go outside. And if you don't do exactly as God has instructed you, the destroyer will come into your house and he will strike you dead. Now, wait a minute. I thought God's people were his people. I thought God had heard their cries. I thought the very reason why God was coming was to do what? To rescue them. But now he's saying, don't even come outside. And if you don't do exactly as I say, then you too will be struck down dead. I thought God heard the cries of his people. I thought his, their suffering had gone up to heaven. I thought God loved his people. The Israelites are the oppressed ones. The Egyptians are the oppressors. The Israelites worship the true God, but the Egyptians worship uh, idols and they worship false deities. Why would they need to do any of this at all? Here's why. God is telling his people, if you try, even if you, even if you are my people, if you try to come to me and meet me face to face, based on your character alone, you will have no hope, just like the Egyptians will have no hope. When it comes down to it, our best day and our best character will come no closer to earning God's salvation than the worst of God's enemies. Now, this is something we can't miss here. God is not giving... He is not showing favorites here. He says it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter your, the good that you have done or, or who you worship. If you stand before me and come outside and come face to face with my judgment, you will be struck down. I think we all know this to be true. Deep down, if we were to meet judgment, the judgment of God solely on your record of living up to God's standards, would you have a debt to pay? Now, consider this. If, if, you, if, if you were to stand before God right now, uh, based solely on your record of right and wrong, would you owe anything to God? Would you owe a debt? Would you have anything to apologize for? Would you have, in any single way, fallen short of precisely what God has commanded you to do? If God were to audit your heart's intentions, your secret struggles, your covert or overt sins, who could stand face to face with God? The Bible tells us the debt for our lying words, the debt for our sinful 
thoughts, our selfish actions is the debt not any single one of us could pay. But what if God suddenly called in that debt? None of us could stand. Um, I don't cheat on my taxes. I just want to say that. <laughs> I promise, I really don't. Like, I actually, I really don't. It's like, I, I, I got to do it right. But still, every time I submit, like, send, I still think, I'm going to get audited. And, I'm so, and it's just, like, terrified, right? What if I get audited? So well, you got nothing to worry about. Like you follow the rules, you did everything right, you didn't lie. But 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 if if it's terrifying. So I buy audit protection. Anybody else do that? Is, but I'm still terrified. And with our taxes, like you're like if you're completely honest, it's like you really have nothing to worry about. But what if what if God called in that audit? I'm gonna I'm gonna audit your heart's intentions. None of us could stand. You see, God isn't showing favorites here. The judgment of God is coming door to door. He's auditing our hearts. God will unleash the greatest power that has ever been unleashed on all of creation, and he will send judgment like an armed soldier, and it will cut through evil like a warm knife through butter, and no one will be spared. And there's only one thing that can stop it. The most, the destroyer, the, the, the most powerful judgment that will come to, to extinguish sin. And there's one thing that can save us. What is it? It's, it's this. <laughs> it's this. This fluffy little lamb. This is the weapon against the most terrifying, scariest, powerful Judgment in all the world. The greatest power that's ever been unleashed on creation is coming. And our only hope is the mildest and meekest of all of God's creatures. The only way God's people will be able to withstand the most powerful weapon in the world is for God's people to kill the lamb, to eat it as a family, to paint its blood on the outside of their doorpost. If people say that the Bible is confusing, we can say, yes, I think you're right, it is. I, this doesn't, I, I do not understand that. But, but we can understand through the story of what God is communicating, that salvation will come through judgment. And not in the way that we expect. Salvation doesn't come to us because of our character, not through our strength, not through our record. He takes the mildest of all creatures and he says, this will become a substitute for you. And I want you to work hard to find the most spotless lamb without blemish. And I want you to do the most unfair thing that you can do to this lamb. I want you to slaughter it. I want you to eat it. I want you to take its blood and I want you to paint your house with it. You see, we should look at the story of the destroyer, that God is a God is a, of, 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 a, of cosmic and supernatural holiness that we have wronged, and he doesn't show favorites. But now we enter into the story of the lamb. What does this mean? What does it mean that we, would, we should take this lamb, the mildest of all creatures? In fact, the story of the lamb permeates throughout all of the Bible. It's not in isolation here. It would be difficult to understand much of God's relationship with his people apart from the lamb. 
It could even be said that the Bible is about the story of the Lamb. It is the thread that goes from the beginning to the end. We see it in the first family as Abel uh, 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 was a keeper of the sheep. And his act of love to God was offering up a lamb to God. And we learn that in that act of sacrifice, God accepted it and was pleased with it. And we see in the book of Revelation, at the end of the story, we see the lamb on the throne. We see the lamb who is the meekest and mildest, who has been slaughtered, but is also in triumph over sin and death and has become the feast for God's people. From beginning to end and all throughout, we see the story of the Lamb. We trace the story that was with Abel as the keeper of sheep. We trace this story of the Lamb to Abraham, where God chose Abraham. He comes to this one man, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of of a multitude of people, and more numerous than the stars in the sky on a dark night. If you can count the stars, then you can count your family. And Abraham says, there's one problem. I don't have any offspring. My wife can't have children. She's 90 years old. And he says, with man... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Abraham believed God. He had faith in God's word and what he had said. And so God credited that to him and through, uh, it credited to him as righteousness. He believed in what God said. And, and Sarah, his wife, bore a son, Isaac. And Isaac now is grown and he's growing. He's a young boy. And God says, I want you to do something. I want you to sacrifice your only son whom you love. We don't understand the significance of this at this point. We are like, why would you do that? But Abraham, in faith, he has trusted God. He knows God is faithful. He knows that God won't let him down. And so he builds an altar. He takes his son and he goes up to a mountain and he builds an altar to sacrifice his one and only son whom he loves. And his son looks at his dad and says, Daddy, I see the wood, and I see the altar, but daddy, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide. And just as he raises his hand with a knife in his hand to offer his son, God tells Abraham, stop. And he presents to him a lamb. And he says, sacrifice this lamb instead of your son. And in doing this, God is saving one person. He's saving Isaac through the substitute of the lamb. And then later we see that this would continue in the story of God's people. But no longer was it a rescue for one person, Isaac. It would be a rescue for an entire nation. Eventually, God's people would sacrifice the lamb on the day of atonement. To atone, to cover up the sins of God's people, God would receive that sacrifice as a suitable sacrifice for their sins. And they had to do this every single year. And so now this lamb wasn't sacrificed for one person. It's not sacrificed like for one family, like in Exodus where each family had to get a lamb. It's now sacrificed for an entire nation. Throughout the entire Bible, we have it pictured to us again and again that anyone who wants to be made right with God can only do so on the basis of the lamb that God has provided in our place. And to put it in the most realistic yet gruesome terms from our passage, on the night 
that God brought judgment of sin to Egypt, every single house had one of two things in it, either a dead child or a dead lamb. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. A dead child or a dead lamb. Every single household was either weeping in pain or weeping in joy because of a dead child or a dead lamb. This was true for the most spiritually aware and the least spiritually aware. This was true for the worst of sinner and those who might consider those who commit sins that are maybe more bad and gruesome and less acceptable, right? If anyone that night said, we don't need to do this, God has spoken to us. We're a part of his family. He's chosen us. We are his people. This seems ridiculous. Why waste money on this lamb and do all of this as God has said? They would have died. If anyone that night did not follow God's word and trust in his word, they would have been struck down because there was only one hope. They would have to give their own blood or they would have to rest in the blood of the lamb. And this is what it means. It means God is showing us by what means he will save his people. He will save his people through a substitute. A a lamb dying in their place. Now imagine with me real life in these homes. Real life. Now God says, I want you to take 10 days and find the perfect lamb to make sure that you get the perfect lamb. Take 10 days to find a perfect lamb, but you're not allowed to slaughter it and eat it until day 14. And so for four days, the lamb has to stay in your house, not outside. It has to stay in your house with you. It has to be your pet. You get attached to this lamb. You have in this home four days with you. I have to imagine at some point, the little, you know, little six-year-old Sally looked up to her father and said, Daddy, can we keep it? Do we really have to kill it? It's really nice. It hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, it's a one-year-old spotless lamb. They've spent 10 days finding the cutest and most perfect lamb. I mean, let's, let's see it again. I mean, this is what's in the house. You don't want to eat this. You want to keep it. You've gotten attached to this. You're riding it around. Four days living in the house, you're getting attached to this, and God knows this. And that's why he says to the parents, when your children ask, why are we doing this? Do we really need to do this? This is what you are to say to them. And I'm paraphrasing it. This is what you're supposed to say, dads, to your children. It's either you or the lamb. I'm not kidding. It's either you or the lamb. Okay, Fluffy's got to go. I want to jump ahead to the story uh, before we come to the doorpost and see how all these stories of lambs were just creating in God's bigger story a pattern to live by. Lambs are given up, people are saved. Lambs are given up, people are saved. Lambs are given up, people are saved. You can understand that not a single person then would misunderstand John the Baptist's comments when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Their whole story, their whole life, every year, a ritual observed 
And they knew, every single person knew, a lamb loses its life and we get to go free. A lamb loses its life and we get to go free. So when John said, the lamb of God, who doesn't take the sins away for one person, not one family, not even one nation, but the sins of the world. This is what we've been waiting for. A lamb was given in the place of sinners to be rescued. And ever since John the Baptist identified Jesus as the lamb of God, all of Jesus' ministry and everything he did while on earth was aimed at doing one thing, being that substitute, offering up his life for yours. That is why his last words on the cross when he hung there and died was, it is finished. It is this very purpose that I have come, to be the Lamb of God, to offer my life as a substitute for God's people, because every single one of us, if we were to stand face to face with a God who's auditing our debts, none of us could stand, none of us would go free. The destroyer and the Lamb of God together on the cross. Do you see what is happening here? The judgment of God that was first seen in this pouring out of plagues on Egypt in all of its ugliness, in all of its anger, in all of its pain is now being poured out on the cross. The destroyer has come down and has judged sin. And it is there on Christ, but there also is the lamb that is being sacrificed. Together, the judgment of God and the mercy of God existing together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, God saw the suffering of his people. He heard their cries. He sympathized with their pain. He saw their sin. But if they wanted to see the sun come up that next day, and if they wanted to be rescued from slavery and taken out of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, and if they wanted to go from that land with all of their family intact, they had to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And God wasn't showing favorites. It didn't matter how much they wanted to be rescued. It didn't matter how hard life was. If they really wanted to be free, if they wanted to be free from the bondage of slavery, if they wanted to worship God with the fullness of hope, if they wanted to come into a new life of experience of peace and forgiveness, they had to come under the blood of the Lamb. And so it is with us. And to see a picture of what this looks like to come under the blood, what does that mean? What does it mean to come under the blood? How do we do that? How did God's people come under the blood of the Lamb? We see the story of the doorpost, another vision here, another word picture. We know that those who marked their doors with the blood of the lamb, did not die. And we are told that not a single family, not a single Israelite, came under the judgment of God because they marked their doors with the blood of the lamb. We also know that there were also Egyptians that were spared as well who trusted in the God of the Hebrews and they also sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the lamb of their doorpost. We know this because we know that when the Israelites left, we also know that some of the families of the Egyptians left with them. So we know that God is showing mercy to the worst of those and to those who are part of the family of God. He's not showing any favorites. 
What does this tell us? This shows us a very important aspect of how salvation comes to us. That salvation was by grace alone. Grace for the worst enemy and grace for, the, for God's people. The same need they had. They, had all, they all had a common need. They had fallen short of God's commands and they had a common hope. The blood of the Lamb. And this faith was expressed by brushing the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. What's the difference between the homes that had a firstborn that died and the homes that had a firstborn who lived? Well, we know that, right? God says, when the destroyer sees the blood on your doorpost, the Lord will pass over. The Lord will pass over. The Israelites killing a lamb and marking their doors with blood was an act of faith. It was an act of faith. What does that mean? They had to believe that judgment was coming. If anyone said, oh, God doesn't really mean that. I'm really not that bad. I don't really deserve this. I mean, come on. We've been worshiping God our whole life. If anything, God should be thanking us because we've been the ones oppressed and we've been waiting 400 years. Finally, he's listening to us. If there was a single person who did not believe that judgment was coming to them, then they would have been struck down. So what is faith? Faith, in part, is to believe that judgment would come even to them, members of the household of God. They also had to do this. They had to take God's word and hear God's word, that protection would come to them through the death of the lamb. They had to believe that they would be spared through the substitute and sacrifice of the lamb. Something so strange and ridiculous, they had to believe it because God said it. And so they had to take God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. It's believing what he says about himself, believing what he says about us. But they also had to do another thing. They also had to behold. As John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, that's not a word we use a lot, I understand. We don't say behold. What what, what does it mean? It's not just to look. It's not just to see. It's not just to believe. It's not just an intellectual agreement. Oh, I know what the Bible says, and I believe it to be true. What, is it, what does it mean? It means to grasp with your whole being, to really think about it, to really embrace it. It's more than an intellectual experience. It's more than an emotional experience. It's more than just reading the, the story of the Bible and saying, of all the stories in the world, this, this can be accurate. I believe it to be true. It is a full surrender of our being into the protection and rest of God that he provides for us. And an act of faith was taking the blood and putting it on the door. And for all those who trusted, for all those who had faith, God's judgment passed over. Now, the Passover was a real event, a real event in history, but it's only a symbolic of of a real rescue. The Israelites were free from slavery that day. That next morning, they were free from slavery, and God brought them into freedom, but, but only freedom from slavery in Egypt, not freedom from sin. They were free from death. They did not die that day, but they did die another day. They, they did, were not free from eternal death, and the death of the, law, the Lamb brought life, but it didn't bring life forever. They would eventually die And so Jesus gives new meaning to the Passover. 
He enhances its meaning. He takes it further than it has ever been taken before. He becomes the spotless lamb. He becomes the one without blemish. He becomes the one that we look to and say, but he has done nothing wrong. Why would he die in our place? I want to close like this because we have a feast waiting for us. The Jewish people, like they were supposed to do and instructed to do when they left Egypt, was they were celebrating the Passover feast. And during this Passover meal, you were to have the things in the table and the meal that God had required. You were to have some bitter herbs. You were to have some unleavened bread. You were to have some bitter wine. And you were to have the lamb that was slaughtered so that you can eat. And Jesus prepared a meal, a Passover meal, for his disciples the night before he died. And on the table of the upper room that we learn about in the Gospel of John, on that table we see unleavened bread, and on that table we see bitter herbs, and we see salty water, and we see bitter wine. But there's no lamb. The lamb was not there on on, on what should the disciples feast on? What should they eat to bring nourishment to them? Because it is there that Jesus was taking this symbol even further than it's ever been taken before. He says, I am the lamb that will be slain. I will be the lamb that is killed in your place. And if you believe in my word, as the Father loves me, I have loved you. And you must eat of me to bring nourishment to your body, to your soul. This is what it means to be a Christian. What, are there certain types of, of people that are suitable to become Christians? No. The only type is the type that, that is in debt to God. There's no type of person that is a type of person that's a Christian because God shows no favorites. We are all under his judgment, but he has given us his lamb. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he takes bread and he breaks the bread and said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Eat of it, all of you. And likewise, he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Jesus is saying, you know the story. A lamb is slaughtered so you could be saved. A lamb is slaughtered so you could be saved. But now, let me tell you what it's all about. I will be slaughtered so you can be saved once and for all. And not just from an earthly bondage, but a greater need that we all have. Our bondage to sin. Jesus is our substitute. He is the Lamb of God. And so, friends, what do we do? Do we come uh, bringing our works? Do we come bringing our good character or record? Absolutely not. That is not enough. It is insufficient. What we come is we come with faith, seeing the judgment of God that we deserve, believing in what he's provided for us, Jesus Christ, beholding him, surrendering our hearts to him and saying, what I deserve, you have taken on yourself. Thank you, Jesus. You are my only hope. With faith in our hearts, let's eat and drink together.